Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Jesus crosses the Roman Sea in Matthew, he brings the good news of the Matthean genealogy, of the liberation of God's people from captivity to the Gentiles living under the control of Caesar. The Gadarean exorcism consolidates a pattern in Matthew. Those whom we assume to be wrong are the very ones who obey the command of the Master. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. You're listening to the Bible as literature. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 270 of the Bible as Literature podcast. For a moment there, I paused, hoping that the audience would reply and say hi. But we're not recording live anymore. Sadly, I love working in front of a live audience. There's nothing like the energy you get from that. So we're going to go back to imagining our live audience, who is (laughs) nearly as wonderful as our live, live audience. Or possibly we could just do a Bible symposium once a month. It's, (laughs) It's something to hope for. So today, we're going to continue with the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. We're moving on to verse 28. And what's interesting about this episode is it reminds me, Rich, of something I challenge my own children with, and that's this idea that there are not good people and there are not bad people. There are just people. The distinction that we create in our mind is our construction. It's our idol. And scripture is always smashing those idols. It's always leveling the playing field in Isaiah so that no one stands out but God. There is no right side or wrong side. There's just the community of human beings who are all under the scriptural God. Exactly. The only way we're going to know who's good and bad is on that day when God makes his decision who is good and who is bad. But we as human beings are incapable of knowing who is good and who is bad. We can't know. You have the centurion, you have Peter, you have the leper, you have all these characters who encounter Jesus, and naturally, someone hearing the story is going to try to figure out who is right, who is wrong, who's close to Jesus, who's not close to Jesus. And thus far, what we've seen is that it's exactly the characters you don't expect to have favor in the eyes of the Lord, that receive his favor. The standout, of course, is the Roman occupier. And now we've crossed the Roman Sea, and we are going to encounter another occupation, similar to the paradigm in the Gospel of Mark, where you had someone who was literally in bondage, and Jesus had to come to set that person free. Here in Matthew, when he came to the other side, into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him, as they were coming out of the tombs. 
So there are two men here. Once again, they were hanging out in the tombs, which means they were, in effect, bound by the power of death, by the one who wields the power of death, which is Caesar. Right. They're bound by this power. And, you know, we just came off of another passage where the multitudes were bringing forth people who are possessed by demons. And we have the same word here used in Greek, demonizomeni, and they are controlled by this. And as we said before, these false teachings, these spirits, it said before, here it does not say spirits, but when it was the crowds, it says that they had spirits and that Jesus was going to cast out these spirits. So we have a similarity here, but we see already some of the differences, along with the fact that they've already crossed over the sea into this new territory. And after the scene where his disciples are so amazed that even the winds and the sea obey him. So he crosses the Roman Sea, and he's now on Caesar's turf. And 28b, they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. So clearly, these two men are controlled by someone who violently controls the territory. It's an allusion to Caesar's dominance of the region. Matthew, as we're going to see, so intricately weaves these pericopes together in chapter 8, especially with a centurion. You know, for us, we just think a centurion is just a soldier. He's not a soldier. He's an occupying Roman soldier. This is not good. You don't like to have Roman soldiers in your town. This is a significant parallel, I think, with the centurion specifically and with the Roman occupying army in general. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Just as in the Gospel of Mark, Richard, here, they presume the authority of Jesus, just like the centurion. The men in the boat were amazed that the sea and the wind obeyed Jesus. But this is not surprising to the centurion. The centurion knew as soon as Jesus speaks, it happens. And the only other character to recognize this is these demons who recognize immediately, "Uh uh-oh, Jesus came to town, whatever he says is going to go. They are not amazed that Jesus can control the winds and the sea. They know that they're controlled by Jesus's word. And the beauty of Matthew's artistry, I'll use Father Paul's word, the superlative artistry of Matthew comes into play here because oftentimes, even today, even scholars, when they see previously people who are possessed by demons, we say, oh, well, this is a psychological problem or there's some kind of psychiatric issue or something else is going on here. And in the ancient world, they actually imagine this as being possessed by demons. But then Matthew says, you know what? I'm going to have these demons actually speak. These are not just passive forces in the universe. They are characters in Matthew. They speak in Matthew. They actually play a role in the story besides just possessing. They speak. And what's even more important is that just like Peter, who was not embarrassed to have Jesus come into his house, unlike the centurion, the demons recognize Jesus and Jesus's authority in a way that his own disciples don't. And just as the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7 forces the listener to submit their ego to God and to the word that Jesus speaks, the only ones so far ready to actually submit are the Roman soldier 
and the devils. The followers of Jesus are not actually interested. The crowds are just amazed. The demons are subject to Jesus when the crowds bring those who are possessed. But the people who bring them are not subject to Jesus. They're just amazed. They think it's wonderful, but they don't submit to Jesus. Only the centurion and the devils actually submit to Jesus's word like they're supposed to, according to the Sermon on the Mount. There are no good people. There are no bad people. There are just people. You cannot make any assumptions about any of the characters in the Gospel of Matthew, just as in life, you should never make any assumptions about any of the people you interact with. And when you do form opinions of people based on your experience, you need to always challenge yourself to reconsider those characterizations. Because at the end of the day, you make a character in your head to represent the people you encounter in life. And to the extent that we human beings are selfish, judgmental, and cynical, we make out of our neighbor a characterization that reflects our own sins. Always, always question your own judgments. Question your own impressions. Now, there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. A couple of things. Number one, as always, the swine underscore and emphasize the fact that we're dealing with Gentiles on Gentile territory. But here what's striking is that the demons are speaking exactly like the centurion, Richard. Because the premise of verse 31 is that they know that Jesus can say the word and they will have no choice but to do what he commands. Just hear it this way. It's powerful. Jesus can just give a word, and they're begging him to give the word. I don't know what to add to that. You're right on, Father. They presume the authority of Jesus' word, just like the centurion. The people who are amazed do not presume the authority of Jesus' word. They subject themselves to Jesus' word, whereas the people who bring the people who are possessed, they don't presume. The other people are like, oh, Jesus, do you mind if I bury my father? No, like, if you believe in what I'm doing, you're going to drop everything because you don't have a choice. If you're going to say, oh, I want to follow you, then Jesus has to say, oh, by the way, you realize that following me means you only follow my word and that's it. And all you get is the word. You don't even get a den like a fox. I mean, you get nothing but the word, but these demons, they presume that this is it, that their fate completely hinges on the words that come out of Jesus's mouth, which is the correct stance to the Sermon on the Mount. The demons are the best ones here so far, may be superseded by the centurion, the Gentile. Now, there's one distinction in verse 32 that puts a twist on this reading, Richard, and it's sad because in English— The verb that's used is go, both with respect to the household of the centurion and here with respect to the demons. Let me read the verse and then I'll go a bit into the Greek. And he said to them, go, and they came out and went into the swine 
and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Now, the verb go, as it appears here in English, in Greek in verse 32, is ipago, sending away or going away, which is not the same verb that is used when the centurion is explaining order in his household. When he says, I say to this one, go, and he goes in verse 9, the verb is porevome. But what is interesting is that when Jesus commands the centurion in verse 13, he says, Ipago, again, go, it shall be done for you. So the verb that Jesus uses to command the centurion is the same verb that he uses to command the demons. So the Greek terminology here underscores what we're trying to say about the link between the centurion and the demons. I mean, the parallels between the centurion and the demons are significant. And as you say, they're the, quote, obvious, unquote, bad guys in this so far, but they're the ones who act correctly. Because when Jesus says to the centurion, go, and as you believed, which is often how it's translated, it'll be done. As you have believed, as we've said, it means as you have trusted. But we see with this word, ipago, that there is this kind of subservience. This is what Jesus commands to the centurion. This is what Jesus commands to the demons. So this idea of trusting that the centurion has towards Jesus is a subservience. I know where I fit in the chain of command. And the demons also know where they fit in the chain of command. They say, son of God, for heaven's sake. I mean, they clearly know where they fit, but the other ones don't know. The disciples go and wake up Jesus because they're worried what's going to happen. The crowds just presume that Jesus is going to do what they want him to do. The person wants to bury his dad before he follows Jesus. They don't trust in Jesus in this way of subservience like the soldier and like the demons. And so this trust, Matthew is teaching us, has something to do with presuming the authority of the word that comes out of Jesus's mouth. Last week we mentioned, Richard, that Galatians forms a backdrop for this section of Matthew. And with this in mind, you can see how in the encounter with the centurion, you have, in effect, the evangelization of the Roman household. So you could, in this sense, see the encounter between Jesus and the centurion as the baptism of the patrician and his entire household. And now here, with the swine being sent down the steep bank into the waters, you have, in effect, the baptism of the nations. There's a parallel. So they ask Jesus to give a word, and he commands them, and they're drowned in the sea. We have this chain of command from the Roman Empire, and it is baptized because this is precisely the chain of command that Jesus wants his disciples to follow. I love this parallel you drew with the nations going into the sea, because that, of course, reminds us of the Exodus and God's victory over the nations for the sake of Israel to be redeemed, to become his servants, right? So if this is the case, then these demons who have enslaved these two men are now drowned in the sea, which is that kind of primordial baptism that Israel went through as it came out of Egypt. At that point, Israel was expected to be subservient to God's word when they went into Sinai. So as these demons are 
killed or destroyed like Pharaoh's army in the sea and the bodies of these swine, those who are freed then are not freed so that they can enjoy their freedom. They never receive freedom. They only change masters from these demons, from these occupying forces to God, the one who redeemed them from the forces who enslaved them. Look, in the narrative arc of the Bible, even in Exodus, when God destroys Pharaoh's chariots in order to save Israel, the interest of the Pentateuch is the salvation of the nations through Israel. This is a really important point. Matthew begins with the Lord sending his people into exile in the genealogy so that he can establish a new line and supplant the line of the supplanter. You have a new Jacob in the gift of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus is not the son of Judah in the genealogy. In order for Israel to be rescued, to be saved, they had to be sent into captivity, into exile. This is a pattern. In order for the nations to be saved, they also have to be destroyed. Now, obviously, it's not a literal destruction because Scripture, in the metaphor of its violence, is not a violent text, and it is not advocating for violence. But it's presenting a story that meets Roman violence on its own turf. Because you have, again, this clear narrative imagery of Jesus commanding a ship, crossing the Roman Sea, and entering into Roman territory, and freeing an occupied piece of land by sending these swine to their death. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. I just love Matthew so much because of how he weaves these texts together. We have these people who are witnesses to these two men who were redeemed by God, by the word of Jesus, from these demons. When you were talking earlier, Father, about the redemption of the Gentiles, this is exactly the judgment that's on the Gentiles. Okay, you saw these people freed from this occupying force. How are you going to react to the word that freed them? This is your judgment. And this was the judgment on the nations as Israel moved through Canaan in Exodus through Numbers, because some of the nations say, eh, you know, Israel, we have no respect for them. Other ones said, we heard about what happened in Egypt. This is what Rahab the harlot says in Joshua. We heard what happened. I and my house, we fear the Lord because we know what he's able to do. And when God talks about why he freed the Israelites from Egypt, it was not so that they would be free. It was so that God would be glorified. He was doing it to glorify himself. This is what Jesus is doing. The word is glorified because it has the power over the demons. And now these people who saw the glory of the word and what the word is able to do, they are now under judgment. Will they submit to Jesus's word? This is the judgment on the nations. Now, Israel is also a nation. They're under the same judgment. Will all the nations submit themselves to the word and be obedient to what God has spoken through Jesus? 
And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. But they're in a dilemma. They were being controlled by these two guys possessed by devils, and now they've got the guy who was able to control those devils. Maybe they preferred the devil they knew as opposed to the devil they don't know, which is the word of Jesus that's able to control the devils. They're worried. They want him gone. They are worried about the person Jesus and what kind of power he possesses, just like the crowds were impressed by Jesus's power. But no one wants to submit to Jesus's word. Only the devils who knew they had no choice and the centurion who submitted. What scripture is seeking to do in the minds of the people is to set them free from oppression without necessarily changing their political situation. I think very often people get excited and try to transpose scripture into the political arena. But as I said, the military imagery in Matthew is not about a military confrontation with the Roman Empire. The military imagery is part of the narrative mechanism meant to disempower Caesar in the mind of the hearers of the Gospel of Matthew. Because if you're still afraid of your oppressor, then you're not really under the authority of the Father of Jesus Christ. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.